0: Everybody loves an underdog story, don't they? A rags-to-riches story seems to capture our attention. And there's one that's going on right now in our nation, and you may know about if you're a sports fan, and that is the story of Stetson Bennett. He's the starting quarterback for the University of Georgia Bulldogs, and they're going to be playing in the national championship game tomorrow night. And he is really the essential definition of an underdog, a rags-to-riches kind of story. In high school, he was a three-star quarterback out of five stars, and he held a few offers to play for schools, but they were kind of smaller schools like Middle Tennessee State, and he decided in 2017 he would walk on at the University of Georgia, try out for the team and see if he can make it, and he made the scout team, which if you're not sure what a scout team is, that's the team that the real team practices against during the week. And so he was the quarterback of that, but he wanted to be able to play in real games, so he transferred to a junior college in Mississippi, led his team to ten wins and two losses, and they won their bowl game, and that was enough to get the attention of Georgia once again, and they offered him a scholarship to come back and compete for one of their starting quarterback positions. And as the, the story goes, he he was thrust into that position twice and lost it twice. And then when the, finally the, the star quarterback went out again on injury, he was put back into the starting rotation, and as they say, the rest is history. Last year, he led them to the national championship game and the first national championship that Georgia has had in, in quite some time. Not quite as long as A&M, but that's another story. And they play again tomorrow night. So I don't know about you, but part of me wants to root for him as an underdog, and this rags to riches story. It's said that his estimated name, image, and license deal for this year is estimated at a million dollars, and so not bad for it a kid who's from a poor farming community in Georgia. For my part, I'm going to be cheering for the other underdog tomorrow night, Texas Christian University, TCU Horn Frogs, and see what happens. But anyway, it's a great story, and if TCU wins, that's another underdog story that will be um, in front of people's minds this week. But those stories pale in comparison to the underdog story or the rags-to-riches story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've been looking at this passage in the book of Philippians, we see Paul teaching these friends of his that he helped start this church in a Roman colony in the the Roman Empire, the city of Philippi. And he's been encouraging them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He knows the pressure is on. He knows it's not easy to follow Jesus. But he's encouraging them to do so. And in chapter 2, he begins to turn his attention to other issues that are threats to this congregation. Not stuff from the outside, but rather from the inside, division, and envy, and fighting. And so he begins by saying in verse 1 these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In the weeks gone by when we've looked at this, we've noted that that word selfish ambition just is a general word for selfishness or selfish rivalry. It's, it's that the desire within each one of us to, to be first, to be noticed. And there's also that word conceit, which I like the way the King James Version translates it, vain glory or simply an empty glory. Do nothing. Out of glory for yourself, which is empty. We define that as having an excessive appreciation of one's own worth and value. So he says to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That word humility is so important. It's it's such a vital lesson for those who want to follow Jesus Christ to learn. And he's going to use the preeminent example of humility in the Lord Jesus Christ in just a moment. But let's just note that in humility, he wants them, and through them, he wants us to count others more significant than ourselves. And he's speaking specifically in the fellowship of a local community of faith. So in other words, instead of having an excessive appreciation of your own worth and value, Paul tells them, I want you to have an excessive appreciation of each other's worth. And value. Paul goes on to say, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so we noted in weeks gone by that in following Jesus, humility is everything. It is an essential mark that should accompany those of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior. And Paul's gonna use Jesus as our Lord and Savior as the preeminent example. He says to them, Have this mind among yourselves, or this this mindset in your community of faith, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We noted that word, that form of God, supposed to get our attention. Other translations put it like this. Existing in the form of God, being in very nature God. This is a claim to the deity of Jesus. And so though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or or exploited, we might say, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of those divine prerogatives to be recognized in that moment when he was clothed in flesh for who he really was. He emptied himself for time being by taking the form of a servant, we're told, being born in the likeness of men. That word servant could be translated literally as slave. In the Roman Empire, if you were a slave, you had no rights. None whatsoever. You did not own property. Your life literally was not your own. And so we want to make this important point. Jesus, the one who had every right, became as one who had no rights. And so Paul is using Jesus as an example to the local congregation living in Philippi and we get to hear in, and he wants to use that example in our own lives as well. Jesus, the one who had every right, became as one who had no rights, and he wants us to follow in those footsteps. Think of that time when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that last supper he had with them, when they were arguing about who was the greatest among them. Jesus took off his outer robe, took a bowl of water and towel and began washing their feet and this was an act that was reserved for the lowest of the low slaves or servants in a household and jesus did that for them this one who was the master this one who was this great teacher this one who had crowds clamoring to hear him should have had his own feet washed by the disciples but instead he humbled himself and washed their feet but that's not all he did paul tells us that being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we think of Jesus, he didn't only obey when it was easy. He obeyed when it was hard, even when it meant staring death in the face as others conspired around him, nailed him to that Roman cross, and put him up there for public shame. It was in that moment that God was at work behind the scenes, making atonement for our sins. Listen to these beautiful words from Isaiah chapter 53, written some 700 years before Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This one who deserves to be esteemed highly, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah also says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, this most beautiful and perfect of human beings, the one who, when he asked his opponents what sin can they accuse him of, were silent like crickets. This one who is so beautiful, so perfect, was nailed to the cross, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Paul is highlighting for us the humility of Jesus, this one who had great glory, became human, underwent torture, and the, the lowest of low abasements was crucified naked on the cross and hung there, bleeding for the salvation of people like you and me. My friends, if that was the end of the story, you would not know anything about Jesus. He would just be another person that Rome crucified, who had the audacity to challenge their preeminence. But that was not the end of the story. God raised them up three days later. And the disciples went around proclaiming that Christ had returned back from the dead. And with that return, he is now crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the resurrection changes everything. And we're going to see in this passage how God changed everything with that resurrection. And so we go on in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul says, therefore. Everything that's gone before is leading up to this point. Therefore, what has gone before us is, is telling us what Jesus did, what he actively did. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself in his obedience, and he obeyed even in the face of the cross. It is that action, by that kind of person, that God is now going to reverse Therefore, Paul says, God highly exalted him. Not just that God exalted Jesus, but highly exalted him. Another way of saying that is he was super elevated from that low position of of being abased and despised as he hung on the cross for the sins of, of people like you and me, church. God is now super elevated like the way some commentators put it. No one else is exalted like this. Jesus is in an exalted class by himself. He's been super elevated, highly exalted. J.M. Moutier put it like this in his commentary. From the brightness of glory to the dust of death and the place of the curse, from the glory of a true humanity down to the lowest identification with our common clay, by his own self-humbling decision, Jesus shows both obedience and love to the uttermost, and the Father loves to see it so. For it is a principle with God that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's exactly what God is doing in this moment. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus, super elevated him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Now put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of those living in that Roman colony of Philippi. Roman colony is a city that is designated as a a little Rome. And there is great patriotism there. So many soldiers went there to retire. This was a hotbed of patriotism. So if you were to ask them, who has the name that is above every name? They would said, that's easy. That's Caesar. That's the emperor. Going back as far as Caesar Augustus, the son of or really the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar, he ascended the throne, his father was declared to be divine, and so he was known as the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the whole world, and the emperors who came behind them. Loved to have those titles as well, including the psychopath Nero, who's reigning at the moment when Paul is writing from prison. So if you were to ask anyone in the Roman Empire who is the name, or who has the name above every name, they'd be like, that's the emperor. If you were to ask a Jew who has the name that is above every name, they would have said, Oh, that's easy. That's Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush when God told him his covenant name, Yahweh. What a beautiful name that is, by the way. There's a, there's a long tradition that talks about how the very name of God is, is in our breath. Think about it. You inhale. This is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. And he said to Moses, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Who has a name that's above every name? A Jew would tell you that's the creator God. That's Yahweh. David, the king, would write these words in Psalm 138. I give thanks, I give you thanks, O Lord, O Yahweh, With my whole heart, before the gods I will sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So it's not only something precious to the Jews, who are not supposed to take that name in vain, but it was something to be celebrated and enjoyed and praised and proclaimed. God has exalted his name above every name. So it's interesting what Paul now tells us. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus. You remember that the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. The creator God comes with salvation in his hands. Remember when the angel appeared to Joseph, who was engaged to be married to Mary, and in a dream he said to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Even before Jesus appeared in flesh for others to see, he had been given this name that tells people that Yahweh saves. So Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That three-way description there is just a description of all reality according to the ancient mindset. In the heavens, on earth, and below the earth, everywhere and anywhere, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now when you think about what happens when someone bows toward another person, what are they doing? Well, obviously they're paying respect, right? Right? They're, they're recognizing someone, perhaps, who has a, a greater position than they do. We don't really bow that much in our culture, but we do recognize it when we see others bow before kings or, or dignitaries. I was thinking this week of the time in the Lord of the Rings at the very end of the story told to us in The Return of the King. This is, of course, after the, the hobbits who had the, the, the ring of power that was forged by the evil Lord Sauron and had destroyed it in the fires of Mount Doom and, and saved Middle-earth by that. Destroying the evil lord and all his power. And then there's this place in which the true king, Aragorn, who has been unrecognized, is put forward and recognized as king. And so Gandalf the White crowns him. And as he turns, he goes and he joins his people. And there with his, his gal, <laughs> they approach the hobbits. And as they approach these hobbits, the hobbits bow before King Aragorn. And Aragorn says to them, specifically to Frodo, my friend, you bow to no one. And King Aragorn himself humbled himself and bowed before the hobbits. And all those who represented Middle-earth that were gathered there at this coronation of King Aragorn bowed the knee to these hobbits. What was Aragorn doing? He was highly exalting them, wasn't he? He was super elevating them and recognizing that even though he has this divine, um, oh, I shouldn't say divine, that's not the way it's, it's worded in um, in the Lord of the Rings. He, ha- he has this right now to rule and to bring justice and righteousness in the land. He recognizes that if not for these hobbits, and especially for Frodo, Samwise, he would not be where he is now as king. So he super elevates them. So when we think of every knee bowing at the name of Jesus Christ, we should think of people voluntarily bowing their knee in recognition of his greatness, in recognition of the super exalted position that God has given to him. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word Lord in our English translations is capital L, small case, O-R-D. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the same word that they described Jesus as, with that word Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is described in our English translations as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And now God has bestowed upon Jesus not only the right to receive adoration from every creature, but now has given him the dignity of having every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you and I were students of the book of Isaiah, we would hear echoes and reverberations of something that God said through the prophet Isaiah. This is in chapter 45. God says through the prophet to his people, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, For my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do you hear that echo that Paul is picking up on? The fact that Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the one who fills your lungs and mine with air, calls everyone to turn to him, to bow their knee in recognition that he is the rightful Lord, and to swear with our tongues allegiance to him, now gets transposed into another key and given to Jesus of Nazareth. So let's make this important point so it doesn't escape us, my friends. The very title, Lord, that belonged to Yahweh and the appropriate responses of bowing the knee and confessing allegiance uh, with our tongues is now directed toward Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that mind-boggling to stop and think about? I love what St. Clair Ferguson said in his commentary on this. God is the only Savior, but Jesus is that Savior. To the Lord alone, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, but Jesus is that Lord. So if I can summarize our, our study so far, it would be something along these lines. Since God has highly exalted Jesus by giving him the name that is above every name, we should respond by bowing our knee to him and confessing that he is Lord of all. Two points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let's crown Jesus the Lord of our life. We begin the Christian life this way, and we continue the Christian life this way, bringing our lives underneath his sovereign rule. In fact, Paul, in the book of Romans, would say these words. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In other words, you will be brought into a right relationship with God. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be granted eternal life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone, again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, you and I begin the Christian life by calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say, if you've never done that, this is a perfect day to do so. As As we read these words of the Apostle Paul of how God highly exalted Jesus after his resurrection and gave him the name that's above every name, what a perfect opportunity for us to profess that name and to bow our knee before him. So if you haven't done that, you can do that this day in the quietness of your own heart in this moment. Reach out and simply say, Lord, I believe in you. I trust in you. I do believe you're the Lord and the Savior, the one who can forgive me of my sins. My friends, he promises to have mercy on you, to bring you into relationship with him and into his eternal kingdom. Some of you might know that I like the music of U2 and Bono. In December, after my last quote from Bono, I had someone ask me, is there a collection of Bono quotes that you draw from? And I said, no. But I am getting a book for Christmas, my wife told me, which is the autobiography of Bono. So there might be some new ones in the new year. And sure enough, my first sermon, I thought, in this new year, I thought that I would just bring you another quote from Bono. In this book, Surrender, which is his autobiography, he talked about when he was a young lad in high school, and he would go to church with a friend of his down the street who gave him the name Bono, by the way. He would go with him to church and to some camps, and he went to a YMCA camp. And he just talked about how he liked to hear these words about Jesus, and then he said this, I'd always be first up when there was an altar call, the come-to-Jesus moment. I still am. If I was in a cafe right now and someone said, stand up if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I'd be the first to my feet. I took Jesus with me everywhere, and I still do. My friends, that's what it means to crown Jesus Lord of your life, the one who's given his life for us, to, to give our life back to him to believe that he is for us, that he loves us, to give our lives to him, what a great honor. And so that's the first point of application. Let's crown Jesus the Lord of our life. Here's the second one. Let's take great delight in highly esteeming the Lord Jesus. Not just crowning him Lord of our life, but delighting and honoring him and esteeming him and super-elevating him in our own life as well. And what, who could be greater for us to highly esteem than Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. As Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And my friends, that's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. And he invites the worst of the worst to come to him for forgiveness in life. Who could be greater than that? Who could we find greater joy and cheering for and celebrating and, rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, my friends, is why Christians have always gathered together to sing. I was thinking of this song this week, and I didn't have an opportunity to get it into the rotation this week, but we had some other good ones to choose from. But one that we love to sing here. Just stop and think about the affections of the heart that are being poured out to Jesus when we sing, He took my sin and my sorrow, and He made them His very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. In just a moment, we're gonna sing name above all names. We're gonna join our voices together and highly esteeming Jesus by saying, you are highly exalted, name above all names, and worthy of all praise. You are reigning in glory. Jesus, you're the king over everything, exalted to the highest place, and given the name above all other names. My friends, you were created and you were recreated in Christ to be thrilled at exalting Jesus as the king over everything, and that includes the king of your life as well. So my friends, let me encourage you to develop the discipline, if I can even put it that way, develop the inclinations to want to worship Jesus on your own. It's it's so easy now in our culture to do so. I wonder if it might be appropriate for you to resolve in your own heart that every day of your life you will sing to Jesus, whether it's in the shower or in the car, before you go to bed at night, to take delight in highly esteeming Jesus. And of course, we gather together every Sunday with the purpose of highly esteeming Jesus. So maybe it would be appropriate for, for you and me to resolve to be here every week. I mean, of course, I have to be here every week because that's what you pay me to do. But for us to join together with other people in highly exalting Jesus, my friends, there's no greater privilege for you and me to have than to be able to do just that. Let me put it this way. We can never exalt Jesus too highly, nor esteem him too admiringly. We can never love Christ too deeply, nor adore him too devotedly. We can never worship Jesus too fervently, nor pursue him too passionately. We can never cherish his name too closely, nor prize his ro- royalty too immensely. We can never bow our knees too quickly, nor confess his name too zealously. My friends, stir your heart to do this very thing. And Mercy Hill Church, may you highly exalt the Lord Jesus as long as you have breath.